Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris Smith joins us. Chris, how are you doing? It's been a while. I hope you're good, sir. Yeah, I'm very good. And it's good to hear you too as well, Katsu. Good to talk to you. Yeah, and before we take the calls, Chris, a um, very interesting uh, story for us today, our science story of the week. Uh, tomato holds the key to fending off plant parasite. Yes, the domestic tomato that we're all very fond of eating actually has uniquely and for um, some amazing reason evolved the ability to fend off a real parasitic pest for crop plants. The pest I'm talking about is actually called Cuscuta reflexa and it actually goes by the more common name Dodder. And it's an intriguing parasite because it grows in fields, it germinates from a seed but it has no roots and no leaves. And this plant has the ability to sniff out other plants. It can smell where they are. It grows towards them and then it spirals. It winds up their stems and then it produces this special penetration organ called a haustorium which gets into the stem of the host plant and then links itself up. It's rather like you plumbing yourself into your next-door neighbour's water supply. It links itself up to the vascular system in the host plant and then starts to extract sugars, nutrients water and it basically deprives the host plant of most of its vigor and if it's a crop producing plant and soybeans get affected by this coffee plants get affected by this it can seriously damage the yield of the plant and that obviously hits the farmer in the pocket or if you're relying on the crop as a food crop it's going to make people go hungry you can't poison it this parasite because the problem is it's uniquely and intimately connected to the crop plant so if you put poison on one you'll kill the other so therefore, how do you get rid of it? Well, a guy called Marcus Albert, who's a researcher at the University of Tübingen in Germany, he has a paper in the journal Science this week where he noticed that when you try to infect domestic tomato plants with this parasite, the parasite dies. In fact, the tissue where it tries to penetrate the stem of the tomato goes brown colour, and then within a couple of weeks, the parasite is dead. And if you look in the stem of the tomato plant, you find that where the parasite has tried to grow in the tomato has fended it off. And they've actually found out how the tomato does this. They made crosses between tomato plants that were vulnerable to the parasite and those that weren't, so they got a whole load of genetic diversity. And then they looked at the plants that were and were not susceptible, and that enabled them to find the bits of the DNA in the tomato plant that were doing this. They have found that the tomato plant has a, a effectively a chemical tripwire, and it can smell when this parasite is trying to penetrate it. And when this burglar alarm, this smash and grab alarm goes off then the tomato plant engages a whole load of defensive mechanisms which basically make it inhospitable as a host for this parasite and kills off the parasite and so they're now starting to move the genetic machinery that does this into other plants successfully i might add and turn plants that were previously susceptible to the parasite into plants that are no longer susceptible and that means in the future we may be able to do the same thing for crop plants too 
I think it is important that I learned this today because I made this decision to start a little bit of a veggie garden and um, was considering tomatoes. So maybe I need to make sure that um, I plant them slightly separate in case this parasite exists. I wouldn't want it to attack any of my um, other veggies and other plants. But thank you very much, Chris. We take the calls 021-446-0567 and 011-883-0702. What questions do you have for the naked scientist, uh, Chris? Smith is with us. Let's start off in Nordok. Hello, Peter. Your question for Chris. Hello, uh, Chris. Um, um, Peter, can you turn off your, your radio? Let's just start with you turning off your radio so that uh, we are able to uh, have a clear communication. Yes, go ahead. Why is it that when I am lying on my electric blanket, there is a slight current that runs through me and when I touch the wall, it's a very, very, very faint sort of uh, ripple, a current, like an AC current. And if I touch my wife's arm or something like that, the same effect. And I just wonder how does this happen? Hmm. Hello, Peter. Uh, uh, that sounds a bit dangerous to me. If I was you, I'd be getting a new electric blanket because you absolutely yeah. should not be feeling any current flowing through you onto anybody else or the wall when you have an electric blanket. Those electric blankets work by passing a current through a wire which is stitched into the fabric of the blanket and when the current flows through the wire, because of resistance in the wire, you turn some of the electrical energy into heat and the heat is then conducted through into the bed. Now, there should be no contact between you and the electricity. And if you're feeling some kind of current, it might be that the insulation has broken down in a a small way and there's still plenty of resistance, but that could herald the fact that the thing is going to short out. So if I was you, I would look at getting another electric blanket and don't use that one. It doesn't sound very safe. That absolutely should not be happening. Yeah, I was going to say, I use an electric blanket and I've never experienced that. Uh, so, yeah, please be careful. Um, we continue with the calls. Maureen is in Norwood. Your question for Chris. Yes, hi there. Good morning. Um, I wonder if you could tell me if sitting behind a window uh, in the sun, one can still absorb vitamin A. I presume it's vitamin A that one gets from the sun. Or is it hi, Christine. Is it vitamin D? It's vitamin D. Yeah, you got there eventually. Vitamin D is made by exposure of your skin to sunlight. And the way it works is that ultraviolet radiation, so fairly long wavelength ultraviolet radiation, which can penetrate glass, that's true. When it hits your skin, it converts 7-dehydrocholesterol, which is naturally present in your skin, into a molecule called cholecalciferol, and the two differ because the ultraviolet rays split apart one of the rings because 7-dehydrocholesterol is a whole bunch of rings of carbon atoms joined together in a flat sheet, and the ultraviolet splits apart one of those rings. And the cholecalciferol, first of all, goes off from your skin in your blood to your liver. The liver then adds a hydroxyl, an OH group, in the one carbon position, so you get one hydroxycholecalciferol and it then goes off around your bloodstream to your kidney where your kidney adds the sorry the liver adds the 25 cholecalciferol the liver adds the number one and you then end up with 125-dihydroxycholecalciferol and that is active vitamin D and it enables you to scavenge back calcium, phosphate, magnesium both from your kidney 
and from your gut. You need about 15 minutes of sunlight on your skin every day to get enough vitamin D, but it will happen behind a window because the wavelength of ultraviolet needed can still get through the glass. All right, um, let's move on to Claremont. Arthur, your question for Chris. Uh, good morning, Chris. I want to ask you about microbeads, which are in things like toothpaste. I'm told they get flushed into the environment, into the sea, and they get back into the food chain. Uh, is that happening? I'm, in, I'm a vegetarian, and I'm worried about that. I listen on the radio. Thank you very much. Arthur. Yes, there was a, a big news report came out this week saying that a number of companies have agreed to stop adding these particles to various sorts of cosmetic. They are in hand rubs and exfoliating creams. They're in toothpastes. These tiny plastic particles are there because they're used to create an abrasive effect. They, in a, in a soft, non-harmful-to-your-body way, they rub on surfaces and help to scrape dirt away. And if that's on your skin, it helps to get rid of dead skin. If it's in your mouth, it helps to get rid of plaque on your teeth. The problem is, in both cases, the particles then go down the drain and in most cases they slip straight through sewage treatment works and go out into the environment and ultimately into the ocean. Now, the ocean is full of plastic and the problem with plastic going in the ocean is it doesn't just sink and disappear. The ocean waves buffet bits of plastic against each other, grinding it down and plastic, macroplastic, turns into microplastic. What that means is tiny particles of plastic, which are wear particles, which are bobbing around all over the place, and then they slowly sink. Now, why this is a problem? Because plastic is inert, it shouldn't be harmful, but because it's oil-based, it draws out of the water any other oil-based chemicals, and this can include toxic molecules, and so you end up with these particles of plastic with a cargo of nasty chemicals stuck to them, if they're then picked up by filter feeders like shrimps or shellfish, because those animals have more fat and oil-based things in their body, then the chemicals that the plastic is laden with move off of the plastic particles and into the body of the animal. That animal is then food for a bigger animal, and when the bigger animal eats the smaller animal, the entire cargo of toxic chemicals that it had ingested on the plastic now go into the bigger animal. And because the bigger animal eats lots of those smaller animals, the amount of the nasty chemicals in the big animal increases dramatically. Then you come along and you eat that fish or whatever it is laden with those chemicals and you then take them into your body where they can have a, an effect. So therefore, we are concerned about the amount of plastic that's ending up in the oceans and the amount of plastic ending up in the environments. And these tiny particles that are in things like toothpaste are already halfway there because they've already been worn down into small plastic particles and can cause these problems. So the, the lower the deluge of plastics going into the environment, the better, which is why people have lobbied to encourage companies not to do this. But it's certainly a big worry. Scientists are keeping an eye on it, but they are very concerned because this, the, the, we are storing up a big chemical legacy for ourselves. There's already a big chemical legacy in the ocean, and this effect is going to be manifest for many years to come. Chris Smith is with us. We take your calls, look at your SMSs and your tweets at Radio 702 at Cape Talk at Gorgetsu Sachane. We will return with questions from Roy and John and Paul Hoff. I see you as well. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. We continue with the Naked Scientist with a few minutes left. Uh, um, we, we had Chris in Johannesburg, a, a tornado just a few days ago. And Paul in, or John in Paulsov, you want to find out a bit more about this. Go ahead and speak to Chris. 
Yes, um, I wanted to find out to Chris, how does a tornado get formed? Thank you, I'll listen on the radio. Thank you. Hello, Paul. Well, the answer is, we tend to, when we see these things happen, we tend to think, wow, that's an amazing event, very, very rare, it often makes headlines, except if you live in Tornado Alley in the US. But in fact, there are more tornadoes in the UK than there are in the US every year. They're just very small and most people don't see them, and occasionally they crop up in other places, including Joburg. Now, scientists don't actually know how they form or why they form we just know that they are a pressure difference that we know that air ends up in a spiral motion and it's moving from an area of high pressure to an area of lower pressure there are some theories and one theory about how they form is that it's to do with the jet stream and that you have a column of rising warm air a cell of rising warm air and for some reason this interacts with a column of air which is moving sideways across the surface of the Earth, so at high velocity at uh, great altitude. And this has the effect of tipping over the column of rising air, twisting it, and this imparts this spiralling to the air because it feels a force that's effectively changing. And as a result, you set up this circular motion and because of conservation of angular momentum, once the thing is spinning, you can't actually stop it spinning. And, and it then creates this tornado effect. But actually, it's very hard to study. Because if you study a big one, then you'll probably destroy your equipment. And the small ones, you don't know where they're going to form. So it's very hard to do an experiment to set the right sorts of apparatus up to see exactly what's going on to watch one happening and forming and evolving in order to get the kind of data we need. So scientists are trying to do that, but at the moment we still don't have a clear, consistent picture as to why a tornado happens. Uh, let's move to Simonstown. Roy, Chris is still with us. Good morning. Hi. Hello, Kuketsa. Hello, Chris. Chris, with the prevalence of, of uh, artificial intelligence coming into our daily lives, things like Siri, how, how do I know that you're not just a robot? Well, that's a good question. And there was a famous news report um, a couple of years ago around Christmas time where some people from a magazine phoned up or got a phone call from someone allegedly who was selling them something and they started asking them lots of questions and the answers they were getting were very stock answers with the wrong sort of intonation and that kind of thing but it was otherwise pretty plausible and they realized they were talking to a marketing robot and i think in the future you're going to see more and more of this because the kinds of technologies that are coming along make these things extremely plausible we just have to rely on honesty don't we i mean when when people go onto internet uh, pages and they're faced with a kind of would you like me to help you there's a chat box pops up and it's usually got a picture of someone with a headpiece on and you type something in there. Actually, the first contact you're having isn't with a human being at all. You're having a contact with a computer, which has been programmed to decode what you're saying, look for relevant keywords in what you type in, and then hopefully extract some useful information for you. And it finally filters you down to a human, only if you completely defeat its efforts to find you something relevant to, to what your needs are. So, yes, in the future, I think it'll become even more tricky to tell whether you're talking to a real human. But I can assure you I am a real human, and yeah, if you no, want to Turing well, test on me and ask me, some, <laughs> ask me some questions, then, uh, then I'll see if I can pass the Turing test. Yeah, no, and Chris comes regularly, of course, to South Africa, so uh, we know that he is real, no doubt there <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> uh, Manny in Germiston, good morning. Morning, Chris. Yes, uh, I'd like to know whether one couldn't use electricity to generate more electricity. What I'm trying to say is if you, you've got an electric motor that's drawing uh, 50 amps, 
could you use that electric motor to run an alternator and get that alternator to in turn generate 60 amps and so on and so forth and then and then uh, stay away from from fossil fuels uh, if you know what i mean Yes, I do absolutely see what you mean, and I wondered the same thing. I can remember thinking to myself, why don't we just, when this is when I was little, why don't we just connect all of these electric motors we've got up to some big generators and make loads and loads of power, and then we will be able to power the future and won't need batteries or anything like that. What you would be inventing if you succeeded in this endeavour is a perpetual motion machine, which we know doesn't exist. In the world of science, there is no such thing as a free lunch, and energy doesn't come for free. So when you produce a power supply and you run that power supply into a motor, the motor has losses. There are frictional losses on the bearings of the motor. The motor makes noise. There are resistive losses in the windings of the motor, so it makes heat. You're therefore taking energy out of the system that is not turning into movement of the motor. So if the motor then drives an alternator, it's already driving the alternator with less energy turning the alternator than you put into the motor in the first place. The alternator is then subject to all of the same losses. It's got resistance in the bearings it's going to make noise it's going to get hot there's going to be resistance in the electrical cables and so yes it will generate some energy but it will have less energy going into it than you started with it will lose some more energy so the energy that comes out of the alternator will be less than you started with and you can never therefore make more energy than you put in in the first place so that's why you can't do this unfortunately okay our last um, question coming out of Simon Simonstown again uh, andre good morning Morning. Uh, just a quick question. We have a pandemic already. Yeah, um, Andre, you need to you need to switch off your radio, please. I've done so. I yep. apologise. Uh, we have uh, a lot of hospital-acquired infections going on, and the specific one I'd like you to ask you a question about is the Staphylococcus aureus. Now, I know that I've been infected by the specific uh, bug, and I've been on lots of medication, and nothing seems to eradicate it. What is the correct, I would imagine you don't know the specific answer, but what would be the correct combination of drugs uh, to combine as antibiotics to try and eradicate the Staphylococcus aureus? Thanks very much. I listen on the radio. Thank you, Andre and Simonstown. Hello, Andre. Staphylococcus aureus is incredibly common. And many, many people, as in maybe half the population at any one time, might actually have it on them. And in in a smaller minority, people will have MRSA, which is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. It lives in sweaty, uh, sweaty, damp patches on your body. It loves the picking area of your nose, in other words, the anterior nares, where you would stick your finger to pick your nose if you were of that persuasion. It likes living in your armpits. It likes living in your groin. And in the vast majority of people... It lives there without causing you any bother. It becomes problematic when it gets somewhere it shouldn't be. In other words, it breaches your natural defences. So if you go into hospital and you have a, an operation, you breach the skin, which is your best natural defence against microorganisms, and the staph can get into the wound, and it then colonises the wound, infects the wound, and if you have abnormal anatomy because you've got, say, stitches in there or you've had a joint replacement it's very, very hard to get rid of it. Now, there's no one magic combination of antibiotics because these bacteria are continuously evolving. They are swapping DNA with other microbes in the environment and they're therefore acquiring the ability to fend off different antibiotics from the environment and from other organisms. Therefore, it's impossible to say this antibiotic will always work for this bug 
because one has to test the antibiotic against the particular strain of bug that you are infected with to make sure, first, that the cocktail of drugs that are being administered is the correct one. And that's, that's a good part of the work of a microbiology laboratory in a hospital, is testing samples from patients and then asking what is the appropriate choice of antibiotic drug to give this person so that with the fewest side effects, at the least cost, and with the least risk to the environment, you don't use a big guns antibiotic if you can use something simple and cheap that we can use to get rid of this infection for this person. Thank you very much, Chris. We are out of time. Much appreciated, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great questions, everyone. Thank you. And you can follow him at Naked Scientist. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.